This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Jabot. British forces in Mali, we hear from those already there. First few aircraft carried uh, armoured personnel carriers. The French have a variant called the VAB. And we've also moved some other wheeled vehicles. And discuss whether more troops should go. What shape will the army be in after the latest round of redundancies? And how should we commemorate the centenary of the First World War? British forces have been providing logistical and intelligence support to the French military as it continues to conduct operations against jihadists in Mali. C-17s from 99 Squadron, based at RAF Bryce Norton, has spent almost two weeks ferrying French troops and crucial supplies to Mali's capital, Bamako. In a moment, we'll talk to Major General Julian Thompson and BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. But first, let's hear a report from SITREP's Charlotte Cross, who travelled on board one of the British C-17s to Mali as it took part in what's been codenamed Op Newcomb. Late at night in southern France and French military vehicles are being carefully loaded onto an RAF C-17 aircraft. French soldiers work side by side with the RAF air movement staff as they load the trucks and soft-skinned vehicles with painstaking precision. The cargo is destined for Mali, where France's 5th Combat Helicopter Regiment is waiting for it. Each truck is filled with communications equipment and weighs more than 10 tonnes. The vehicles must be positioned exactly in the right spot to balance the aircraft and keep it stable in the air. Sergeant Stuart Dawson is the loadmaster. I spent the day with the Jake team, that's the um, Joint Air Trials Unit. They've basically been looking at the weight of the vehicle, making sure that there's nothing hidden inside the vehicle, checking tyre pressures, uh, basically doing a full inspection of the vehicle and checking its measurements to ensure that it fits through all the openings that we've got and that it's safe to place in certain positions on our aircraft. The next morning, the aircraft takes off for Mali. It's the first time this crew has flown there. Pilot Flight Lieutenant Greg Rawlings says landing in Africa can present a challenge. Looking at the terrain around the airfield or any um, masts, particularly uh, on the charts and things that are available for, for Africa, they may not be as accurate as what we're used to um, in other parts of the world. Um, so it's terrain and obstacles and also other traffic. Um, it's, uh, you know, with, with, the, with it being a hub for the French operation, it's, uh, it, it can be a busy airfield at times. Mali is the new front line in the global fight against al-Qaeda. And although the C-17 will land in a benign area, nobody is taking any risks. The plane is fully armed with a defensive suite to defeat any threat. And the RAF regiment are on board, providing force protection. Here's Flight Lieutenant Greg Rawlings. Initially, the operation of the aircraft is, is the way we mitigate that, by knowing what's happening on the ground and acting accordingly. And then we've got the fallback option of our, of our, own, of our own equipment to mitigate the risk. After a five-hour flight, the plane lands at Bamako. It's a civilian airport next to a military base on the edge of Mali's capital city. The airstrip buzzes with the sound of French Puma and Gazelle helicopters taking off, practising manoeuvres or disappearing into the African skies. All day long, cargo planes arrive carrying helicopters, armoured personnel carriers, troops and other essential kit and supplies. This C-17 is Britain's fourth sortie, contributing to that effort. Here's Lieutenant Colonel Andy Gardner. first few aircraft carried uh, armoured personnel carriers. The French have a variant called the VAB, V-A-B. Uh, and we've also moved some other wheeled vehicles, trucks, communications assets today and smaller vehicles similar to jeeps. 
A small British contingent is now on the ground in Bamako from the Joint Force headquarters as a command node and to coordinate the British flights. And there's evidence of arriving troops from other African countries. The C-17 prepares to return to France. In a day or two, it will be back on another sortie. Nobody can say yet how long this operation, codenamed Op Nukem, will run or what further support the UK may provide in the coming weeks. For the French, this is a mission which is only just beginning and they say it will last as long as necessary. BFBS reporter Charlotte Cross reporting. Uh, Major General Julian Thompson, welcome. Um, We've just heard there about Britain's role so far in Mali. Should the British be doing more? No, I don't think we should be doing much more anyway. I think it's quite clear that special forces will be pushed into Mali, even if they aren't there already. But I can't see that we'd have a sort of Afghanistan-type deployment, and and I don't believe we should either. I think this is an operation which calls for precision attacks on known rebel strongholds using UAVs, drones and special forces, and not deploying large numbers of infantry, for example. Christopher Lee, do you subscribe to that opinion? Yeah, I mean, you go in when you react to something, and I think this is what, uh, if you if look at the whole future uh, future structure of British forces, for example, um, it is designed partly to respond to this sort of thing. So you, let's say, as Julian says, you know, special forces may go in, then you get some sort of uh, uh, logistics go in and communicators, etc. But when that fails, or when the pressure gets too great then you have to take the decision, not at this stage, to boots on the ground in a much bigger way. And that's, that's where we've got to the Do you think that's likely? Does it just depend on what happens next? I think it's a much bigger story than this. You see, we're talking about Mali. Mali is just the beginning. You know, I've always maintained that Mali is the new Afghanistan. But you look at the whole of West Africa, you start looking at places like Central Asian Republic, African Republic, it is an amazing example of what's going on in Africa at the moment where we will get involved. And the reason for that is that you've got very rich countries and very poor people. And rich countries and poor people, you get insurgency. You get the Islamists. You get the perfect breeding ground for what's happened in Mali, what's happened in Nigeria, where exactly the same thing has gone on. Very rich, poor people and, and ethnic uh, 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 divides. And that's important. And that's when... With old uh, and, and even modern sort of defence agreements, that's when we get involved. Julian Thompson. And of course, to a degree, we brought this on ourselves by getting rid of Gaddafi, because Gaddafi held those the sort flow of people of, down. Of arms yeah, and, and also of he imposed a certain amount of uh, discipline, as it were, within his own country on these sort of people. And by supporting his demise, we have to a degree brought this on ourselves. There has been a lot, a lot written about that, hasn't there? I mean, could that have been foreseen, Christopher? Yeah, it was foreseen. And I think this whole thing about this West Africa and the Maghreb, that, that sort of that bit of Saharan Africa has been foreseen. I mean, for the past five years, people have, uh, have said we're concentrating uh, our eyes of far too much in Afghanistan because we really ought to shift to this, this region. And when the decision, uh, when the uprising, part of the Arab Spring or whatever it was, came to go in and assist the people on the ground, the so-called rebels to take over from Gaddafi and effectively sort of kill him off and, and, and put these guys in. What they did, they being the Western countries, especially France and the United Kingdom, they said, OK, we're willing to do this, but we haven't really thought through something that's very important in any country and whether it be far away to us, and that is stability. If a country isn't stable, then at the end up, we, we could end up having to put boots on the ground. Julian Thompson, in this specific situation in Mali, what are the main concerns for Britain and what will military planners be worried about? 
Well, the main concern is that the, for Britain is that Mali should not be the base for exporting terrorism to Britain, as happened, of course, in Afghanistan in, in, uh, um, uh, before, before we went in there. In, and the proximity of Mali to Britain, do, well, do you think no, that plays a big part? No, I mean, Mali is a very long way from Britain. It's thousands of miles. But the point about it is we know you can have terrorist cells set up in a country thousands of mile, uh, miles away from Britain who then train, arm, equip and generally motivate terrorists to carry out acts of terrorism in this country. I yeah, mean, the, so the chaps, for example, who blew up the trains in 7-7 were trained and motivated in Pakistan, which is a very long way from Britain, further away than Mali is. It, it, by that argument, though, uh, intervention anywhere may be pointless. Well, you don't know, not necessarily. It, it, it depends, really, what you're trying to do. If you're trying to completely wipe out the people who are trying to attack you, as we did in 2001 in Afghanistan, very successfully, that's fine. The mistake we made was then staying on and saying, we're now going to turn Afghanistan in, in, into a democracy. You see, That was a big mistake. The main point is this. You see a problem. Let's call Mali a problem. You, French... Send guys in to clear up the problem, i.e. clean up some of the, uh, some of the rebels, the Islamists, etc. You do that, let's say a few French get killed. People in France say to uh, their president, listen, we don't like this, let's come out anyway. So you come out. Who goes back in? The people that you've actually driven out of the country, the Islamists. You've got to either stay there or you've got to do one thing and that's overcome the biggest problem in Africa at the moment. A lot of the interventions that we're making, Mali is a perfect example of it, we're making interventions in, in countries that don't have a, a government, don't have a stable government. Until you have a stable government in charge of stability and security, you are absolutely stuffed on this, and a perfect example of this is Afghanistan. Gentlemen, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, what will the army look like after the latest job cuts? And plans to remember World War I 100 years on. BFBS Sit Rep. But before all that, let's stay with Mali for a while longer. This week, Tony Blair called on the UK to do everything we can to support French military operations in Mali. The former Prime Minister said failure to tackle the rebels will make it a haven for extremism. Well, a short time ago, I spoke to the Shadow Defence Secretary, Jim Murphy, and asked him if the Labour Party were in power, would there be more British boots on the ground in Mali? We wouldn't be involved in a combat role. We don't think that's the sensible thing to do. This is a a predominantly French lead with indigenous forces and neighbouring forces coming together to try and take on a malign, malevolent, dangerous group of individuals who are part of a wider um, global network. So it is important the UK, however, um, does support the French operation, the airlift, um, trainers, part of the EU mission on trainers, and then seeing what more can be done to train the forces of neighbouring countries so that when they do go to Mali, that are able to um, perform professionally um, and ethically, because I think both of those things are very important. There is, of course, an Anglo-French agreement. If the French were to ask for more help, as in boots on the ground, that would put Britain in a difficult position, wouldn't it? I think we should be clear that we've, we are engaged in Afghanistan in a really significant way and elsewhere in the world. Um, and at the, at the moment, and for the foreseeable future, that it wouldn't make sense for us to have boots on the ground um, in other parts of the other parts of the globe, so therefore, if the French were to ask, um, as things currently stand, I think a polite and well-intentioned um, refusal, I think, would be understood. But it would be. I th- that's not saying we couldn't do more in Mali. 
it is about trainers, a substantial number of trainers, either through the EU mission or um, unilaterally working um, in the country. I think that's a sensible thing to do because we have a responsibility. and that We can't allow Mali to get to the stage that Afghanistan got to. can't allow Mali to um, deteriorate, corrode to the extent that it becomes a failed state. But how a concerned are you? Land being a, a launch pad for terrorism across the globe. You say that, but how concerned are you when you when we carry out or, or when in foreign countries carry out these interventions that it actually pushes the problem elsewhere or exacerbates the problem? I think dispersal of the problem is a real threat in Mali, because the borders around um, that country really don't exist. I mean, anyone can look at a map of, of North North, and, uh, North Africa and just see, you know, the countries are drawn, the borders are straight lines drawn with a ruler. I mean, the, so they're, they're theoretical borders in many sense, so displacement is a danger. However, in general, I, I don't buy into this argument that where we intervene, we make things worse. These are people who'd come to that view clearly haven't paid much attention to the Balkans. Where we acted, we acted strongly. Um, our forces were brilliant as part of the NATO alliance, and they've got Things aren't perfect in the Balkans, but real improvement. And we ended um, what was a, a, a horrible ethnic conflict in the Balkans on Europe's doorstep because we intervened. So, yep, displacement's a problem. Occasionally things um, are more difficult than we envisage. Iraq's an example and Afghanistan's an example of that. But I don't think in general it makes it worse. We've had the announcement this week on army redundancies. What sort of shape will the British Army be in once the latest round of job cuts has gone through? much smaller. Um, the what quest- about efficiency, capability? Well, the question there is, can we still do what the Prime Minister spoke about in Parliament sensibly, about being engaged in a generational struggle against an evil Islamist um, threat that continues? And it's difficult to announce, say that in Monday in Parliament and do the opposite in Tuesday in Parliament and cutting the army by 5,000. So I think we should reopen the Strategic Defence and Security Review and see whether it has whether it has survived its first contact with world events because it's difficult to make predictions of the future, but it's not difficult to reflect in a recent history. And the recent history proves the Defence Review wasn't up to shape. You do argue uh, over and over again to reopen the Defence Review, but what really could be achieved, given that we really don't know what's going to be happening in 2020? It's difficult. The future business is difficult. But the recent past is clear. And the Defence Review has been exposed by the recent past. And the one thing worse than a government minister making a mistake is can carrying on regardless when they've made that mistake. So is the army too small? Is it going to be too small? I think we've got to make sure we make a success of the reservists now. This enormous boost in reservist numbers. And the Labour Party wants to see this boost in reservist numbers. We work with the government, we work with business, and we'll work because it's in the national interest to get some of our uh, most kind of committed people uh, who can who've got an interest in serving our country to be able to do both, carry out both careers. So a real cross-party effort in getting those reservists um, up and running, professional, capable, deployable, is the right thing to do. And we'll, we and want to support the government in making that you happen. You believe that is a plan that, that can work? I think it can work, but right now it's not on track. The engagement with business isn't strong enough. The incentive for business isn't strong enough. The messaging about to business... The, the message to business can't just be help us reform our armed forces. The message to business should be, these are brilliant people. They're the most motivated people in our country. They're not only a great boost um, to our armed forces, but they are fantastic for your business. Employ them, not just in the national interest, but in your interest as a company. Today the US military has announced it's lifting the ban on women serving in combat. How will women feature in the future shape of the British armed forces? And do you think women should serve in the infantry? 
the times have changed through the decades, haven't they? Uh, I, I saw and spoke to women in Afghanistan who, um, in decades gone by, wouldn't have been involved in the type of activity that women are involved in in Afghanistan. The Labour Party and Women in Power looked at this in 2010 about close combat role. Um, we took a view that that shouldn't happen and expanding role for women in the military. And, um, and we've seen the sensible decision about um, submariners and women being submariners. I think that's the right thing to do. But in close combat... We don't think the argument has yet been um, convincingly made, but we continue to look at it and we'll listen to military advice, um, the type of threats that we're involved in the future and the shape of future forces, so we continue to listen. That was the Shadow Defence Secretary Jim Murphy speaking to me earlier. Um, Let's just return briefly to that subject, Mali and North Africa, Christopher, and the intervention or otherwise... um, what are you hearing about it, it, that? It goes on something that Jim Murphy was saying about you know the consequences of in, in, in intervention. What we're hearing at the moment is that five or six targets in that region have been identified that Islamists could or are about to try and hit. In other words, once, you, once you've created a reason to do it, they will do it. Now, the first one that's coming up at the moment, and the British are being told to get out of Benghazi and leave like as soon as you can. If you've got no business there, get out. Because Benghazi is, is, if you think about Benghazi, not only is a town, but it's a port with all its gas installations, its oil installations. It's an easy target because a lot of these people came from there in the first place. So what we're seeing and what we could see is another version of what went on in, in Algeria, like hitting a gas station, taking hostages. And that's why uh, the, uh, the Foreign Secretary is going to be saying today, Britain, Britons in that area, get out as soon as possible. Well, let's now move uh, to the future shape of the army. And here's how the announcement was explained and received earlier this week. The redundancy round that we've announced today is part of our overall plan for reducing the size of the army in response to the black hole in the MOD budget. So this is part of a long-term plan. It will deliver us the army that will have the capabilities. We We will be able to undertake the kind of missions that we expect to need to undertake. People talk about uh, you know, the move down to an army of around about 82,000. Uh, I would talk about an integrated army of 112,000, bearing in mind we are going to be uh, seeking uh, more from the uh, reserve. I go out and I speak to, to, to units. They understand uh, the rationale. They understand the need to draw down to our new structure. Uh, and so my aim now is to make this process as uh, smooth as possible. Boots on the ground matter. Uh, we are going to be a fifth smaller than we were, which inevitably will reduce our ability to deploy uh, this or that size of force. That was Defence Secretary Philip Hammond, the Assistant Chief of the General Staff, Major General James Everard, and the former Head of the Army, General Sir Mike Jackson, ending those comments there. Major General Julian Thompson, is the Army going to be in a fit state after this tranche of job cuts? One of the things that really worries me is we're, we're talking about use, greater use of special forces in these future conflicts. Where you get your special forces from, of course, is from uh, the Army. You get 60% from the Army, 40% from the Royal Marines. If you cut the Army, you cut the, the cake from which you're going to take that SF slice, which means you won't be able to recruit so many SF guys just as you're trying to perhaps even increase the size of special forces. So I believe it's a, it's a foolish move. And I think the second thing is I don't actually believe that sufficient emphasis is being given 
to the way reservists are employed. I'm a great fan of employing reservists, but if you're going to do it, you've got to do it like the Americans do. You've got to do it sensibly. You've got to put your money where your mouth is. You've got to pay them right, and you've got to make certain the employers also go along with the deal. And I'm not sure that actually is going to happen. Christopher, Army 2020 is all about rapid reaction. Is it going to work, or at well, least partly about it? It's, it's part, yeah, you're right, partly about it. The, it. Army 2020 is going to look at three, three areas. It's got to be the first one is going to be rapid reaction. You know, we're talking about Mali. Can you go there very quickly? Then there's the long-term commitment part of it, part two, which is where you are, for example, Falklands, Gibraltar, Cyprus. This is where the reserves will be brought in. in well, theory, um, yeah, they might be brought in in, in all areas. Um, and then you've got the other thing, which is which is sort of the backup to the whole thing, plus the reserves, which is, is sort of part three. The importance of this is that somebody has got to decide that by the time we get to 2020, um, one... What is the shape of the forces? Not just the army. What is the shape of the forces? And secondly, what do you expect that you want them for? What sort of things that you're going to do in 2020 that you couldn't do, for Which example? Which is the question that no one can answer, can they, And that is the part of the problem. So you've got to have something which allows you to do more or less things that we're talking about in 2020, but you have to take bigger decisions. There's decisions that will have to be taken by a prime minister, such as... Do we go to long to war with America? Should America go to war? And depends where it is. What equipment do we going to, uh, are we going to have there to, to be able to do that? And the answers at the moment, they don't know. And that is the very scary part of it. And they don't know because there's not been a proper strategic review. They talked about it being a strategic review. It's not. It's a cost-cutting review. And there's never been a proper, for years, review of what we're trying to do, as Christopher says. Um, just very briefly, Christopher, while we're talking about changes, a couple of changes in the top jobs in the armed forces. Well, that's important because, I mean, today they've uh, announced we've got a, we're going to have a, uh, a new first sea lord, uh, uh, Sir George uh, Zambellis, uh, Admiral Sir George Zambellis, and also uh, Sir Andrew Pulford is going to be the new uh, chief of the air staff. These are the guys... And eventually, we get a new uh, uh, chief of the general staff. These are the guys that are going to have to point it, point the army, the a navy, and the air force in the right direction for 2020. These are key appointments today. This is BFBS. Sit rep. How should the 100th anniversary of the First World War be commemorated? It's a question that's prompted debate in academic, military and political circles. The government has pledged £50 million towards building a truly national commemoration and set up an advisory committee. Well, we're joined now by Professor Sir Hugh Strawn, Professor of Military History at All Souls College, Oxford, who sits on the government's World War I centenary advisory panel, and Major Sir Michael Parker of the Queen's Own Hussars, who's produced numerous royal festivities, military tattoos and major public events. Hello to you both. Uh, Sir Hugh, the newspapers have started writing all about the various possibilities, including projecting the names of those who died onto a screen at the Cenotaph. Are you aware of that idea? Is it, is it a goer? It's, it's an option. It's not going to be on the Cenotaph, Sissy, quickly, um, because obviously that would be rather provocative. But, but And it's a Canadian idea, this. There's, there's a Canadian called Robert Thompson who's proposing this. Um, and he wants the name of all those who died, names of all those who died in the First World War, whatever their nationality. So that's allies, enemies, uh, the Commonwealth or the, the, the Empire, uh, projected onto a building in Whitehall. So be adjacent to the Cenotaph, but crucially not on the Cenotaph. What other ideas are you coming up with or considering? Well, I'm not coming up with that one, but that was, that's one under consideration. I think as far as the National Committee is concerned, it really hasn't got its feet under the table yet. Um, and uh, there are a great many ideas floating 
around the United Kingdom, um, particularly as as you uh, can guess at community and local level. I think many many people are thinking, you know, using their own villages, their own war memorials uh, as the basis of what for what they're thinking. And the challenge for the national committee will be to think: How do you provide a framework within which that can sit, which will give it um, coherence and meaning, and crucially, I think also combine what is a very difficult thing for us, which is the difference between the war as seen as wasteful, as futile, as not delivering anything, as 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 uh, leading to excessive loss of life, and the notion that this is a war that had to be fought, that people joined up convinced of the justice of their cause, um, and a war which ultimately, of course, Britain and its allies were on the winning side in. Major Sir Michael Parker, you've just written a book on the subject of big public events. It's all going terribly wrong, the accidental showman <laughs> it's called. If you were starting with a blank sheet of paper for this, what would you come up with? Um, well, as, as the Irishman said, I'd start from somewhere else. Uh, the trouble with these sort of things is that they, they do tend to start in, in, in the wrong place. We had exactly the same problem with VE Day, which I did the 50th anniversary of. It started off as a complete cock-up, and we had to sort of turn it all the way around, and they somehow approached these things from the wrong way. But having said that, I think a lot of what's been said is, is very sensible. One thing's for certain, you can't do a celebration that's going to last four years, so you've got to, to break it up. In my opinion, it's got to have a really good beginning, which is, which is very much on the remembrance line, and it's got to have a very good end. Uh, and in between, I think you've got to be quite careful that you don't bore people with it, but you've got to choose perhaps one thing a year that you're going to do, which is going to, to tell the story of that terrible conflict and the terrible sacrifices that took part in it. And the, the problem always is, is whether something should be commemorative or, or celebratory. Julian Thompson, how... Started off as... On that note, Julian Thompson, if I can just bring you in, how do you get the balance right between commemoration and celebration? Well, that's obviously the thing that's got to be got right. One of the problems that anyone commemorating this war uh, faces, and I'd be interested to hear the views of the other two, is that, of course, more rubbish is talked about this war than almost any other war in history, and all sorts of statistics are, are, are trotted out in support of one argument or the other. Uh, and, and this idea that it was a futile war, you could argue, yes, it was a war that shouldn't have started, and almost started by accident or carelessness. But once it was being fought, I doubt very much, for example, if the French, who, a third of whose country or a quarter of whose country was occupied by the Germans, would regard it as a futile war. So it's really where you're coming from and what your views are. And this is going to bedevil, I suspect, those who are uh, working hard to produce a fitting memorial to what was a hugely important event. Professor Sir Hugh Strawn, um, how should it engage the public, and particularly children and young people, do you think? Well, well, I think what Julian Thompson's just said is absolutely the core of it, because precisely because it's deeply controversial, it was controversial, there were plenty of controversial aspects at the time, and it has remained controversial precisely because of that, we have an immediate point of entry. I mean, the, all these things, uh, uh, including whether it's a celebration or a commemoration, are going to cause debate. And debate is actually very good, it seems to me, for engaging people in the whole process of education. You know, there is an argument to be had about this. Uh, I, I was having to do a, a thing on today, this morning, Shirley Williams was on, and she said 27 million people were killed in this war. I have no idea where she got that figure from. We have no idea how many people were killed in this war. We know roughly that there were 10 million military dead. We don't know have, have a handle on the civilian dead at all. 
Um, and uh, you know, that in itself is not a bad departure point for thinking about what is the level of loss of life, um, where do those losses occur? Relatively few, actually, of that, that total are, are British losses, uh, however heavy the British losses were, say, in comparison to the Second World War. Um, so so you know, the moment you start the discussion, I think you begin the process of education. All right, Professor Sir Hugh Storm, be good to talk to you when you've actually decided exactly how it's going to be commemorated. And uh, Major Sir Michael Parker, thank you for your time today. Um, now, just before we finish, uh, Christopher, um, a few brief things to talk about in other business. Um, Obama, Israel, Europe, and Cameron, no less. Uh, let's start with Obama's inaugural speech. Okay, Obama's inaugural speech was for domestic audience, and it wasn't the big speech, as people would expect. The watch for the 12th of February. That's when he goes to the Senate. That's when he addresses both houses of Congress in the State of the Union message. That's when he'll be telling America and the world what he expects America and the world to do. All right, Is- Israel, um, elections there, Benjamin Netanyahu forming his uh, coalition government. Implications? Uh, implications that uh, the two important things. Will he, will he do business about Palestine and the West Bank? Answer, probably no. He wants to do the thing he wanted to do before the election, and that's he wants to go and bomb Iran, and he wants to knock out of their nuclear capability. To do it, he needs Obama. Wait for the speech on the 12th of February, see if the two link up. That'll be interesting to watch. Um, and Cameron's Europe speech and um, promise of referendum, questions for the British military in this? There is, actually. Um, if you pulled out uh, of Europe... Just imagine all those treaties that you'd be involved in. What happens to Eurocore or Eurodefence? The other thing, what happens to fisheries policy? If you got uh, rid of European fisheries policy, back to the Cod Wars, would you be? You know, there is uh, an example everywhere. Uh, the, the, the Julian, Britain's what are you doing? European... You're misbehaving here in the studio, aren't you? <laughs> he thinks I'm mixing it. <laughs> uh, gentlemen, uh, next week, what have we, we got to look forward to briefly? Well, I would look forward this weekend. There's a meeting in Addis Ababa of the African Union. Top of the, top of the list, Mali. What are the Africans going to do about Mali? Because it's going to be an African solution, not a French, not a British one. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to Major General Julian Thompson and, of course, to our own defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Don't forget, you can join the debate on Twitter. We are at BFBS SITREP. Do join us again at the same time next week. But until then, from me, Kate Sherbo, thanks for listening and bye-bye for now. Forces Station, BFBS.